Thank you, Kyle. Good morning again. Uh, I'm Derek, if I haven't met you. Really uh, glad that you're here this morning. It's wonderful to be together. One of our, uh, kind of our stated purpose as a church, our, our, our mission is to connect people to God, connect them to one another, and connect them to their neighbors. Uh, we want to connect people to, to God so that we might actually see His Spirit produce in us good things, fruit. We've been uh, going through, we just started actually a series last week on the fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like? What does it look like for God's Spirit to be at work in us producing fruit? And so we're actually going through week by week looking at each of the fruits of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians 5. Today we're going to talk about joy. But just one quick kind of discussion before we jump into that, uh, broadly speaking on the fruit of the Spirit, how do we need to look at the fruit that God creates in us? Well, there's a couple of ways to look at it. Maybe the first way and the way we're most tempted is to think about it like a Christmas tree, right? Where uh, our our family's tradition is that the Friday after Thanksgiving, we go out and we buy a Christmas tree. We like the, the live Christmas trees and we set it up and we decorate it. And by the end of the night, or by the end of the, maybe the next night, if it takes us a little while, we have this beautiful tree with, that looks amazing, right? And it shines because we've put lights on it and we've put beautiful decorations on it. But of course, by December the 27th or so, uh, you've got to get that thing out of my house as soon as possible because it's probably going to spontaneously combust pretty soon. Because underneath all of the shiny stuff that we put on it is a dead tree. Now that's oftentimes the way that we approach the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We want to just see it. Let's just put it all on externally so that we have it overnight. But that's not the way that the fruit of the Spirit grows in us. It grows much more like the tree pictured in Psalm 1, planted by the streams of water that grow slowly and beautifully and by many, many years spreads out its fruit far and wide. But friends, that's internal growth, isn't it? Not external growth. That's the way that we grow by the Holy Spirit's work in us, coming from working inside of us to produce external fruit in us. So we're going to look this morning at the fruit of joy. And instead of really kind of going down and, and trying to define it a lot, we're going to actually look at what a joyful life looks like as expressed by David in Psalm 27. So if you've got your Bible, read along with me in Psalm 27. You can read along on the screen above as well, but it's always great to have your Bible in front of you. I may refer to it uh, during the sermon, and so it's nice to have it open in your lap. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be content. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. 
My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word this morning. My heart needs it. Our souls need to be fed. We need to be watered by this stream. So, Lord, will you, will you till the earth around us? Will you soften our hearts that the living water might actually penetrate and that we might be changed? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, some of you know that I'm um, currently enrolled in a, uh, in a doctoral program, and we meet twice a year. And this last week, we had the wonderful privilege of actually meeting together as a group in New York City. Now, this is when one of y'all is supposed to say, New York City, right? But uh, had a great time, really a fantastic learning experience, and just a wonderful time being in New York. And, you know, it's neat kind of when you're in, in a city like that, you know, in an urban neighborhood, and everybody kind of ends up having the same sort of patterns of life. You know, you, you frequent the same coffee shop, and you go to the same kind of bagel shop, or at least I did every morning. And this coffee shop where I would go, the, the very first day, uh, I ordered my coffee. I actually came back later that afternoon to get another cup of coffee because it was so good. And then when I came the next morning, the guy who was working behind the counter who was there the day before, as soon as I stepped up, he just grabbed the cup and he started to actually make my drink. He had remembered what I had had the day before. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And he, with this huge smile on he welcomed me, he introduced himself, we exchanged names, and the next day that I walked in, he not only started my drink, but addressed me by name. Derek, it's so good to see you. This guy whose name was Asher just had this incredible joy about him. And honestly, he's the kind of person that, you know, even if the coffee was terrible, I would have gone back there every day because it was such a wonderful experience just being in his joyful presence and having him serve me. He loved to do it so much. How do you develop a life like that, where joy is so palpable in your life that others can see it? And it changes them, right? It, it actually changed my habits. His joy changed my habits. How do you develop a life like that? I'm going to read you this quote from the author David Brooks. He's an author and um, columnist in the New York Times. He's written a very good book called The Second Mountain. I believe I actually quoted it last week as well. This is what he says about joy. Listen to this. Happiness tends to be individual. We measure it by asking, are you happy? Joy tends to be self-transcending. Happiness is something you pursue. Joy is something that rises up unexpectedly and sweeps over you. Happiness comes from accomplishments. Joy comes from offering gifts. Happiness fades. We get used to the things that used to make us happy. But joy doesn't fade. To live with joy is to live with wonder, gratitude, and hope. It's the joy that 
my new friend Asher lives with. And it's the joy that I think that we see displayed in David in Psalm 27. Even in the midst of some real difficulty, in fact, the setting for this psalm is David on the run from his son Absalom, who's trying to kill him, if you could imagine that. But David, even in the midst of his difficult circumstances, is rejoicing in the Lord. So let's take a look at what joy includes. Well, joy, first of all, we see begins with knowledge, with knowledge. So look, look again at verse 1 and 5. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then flipping over to verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. I mean, incredible words that David uses to describe the Lord, to describe actually the character of the Lord, right, is that, uh, is that it's light. God's character is light. It's salvation. It's stronghold. Those are the words he uses to describe the Lord, that the Lord actually uh, illuminates his path, that the Lord casts out any darkness, that the Lord is a refuge and a stronghold for him, that the Lord in his own character is actually salvation. And then he goes on to talk about the Lord's actions, right? Is that he says that the Lord conceals him in trouble. He lifts him up. He protects him. So David not only knows about the Lord in discussing his character, but David actually knows experientially who the Lord is. He has experienced his salvation. He has experienced actually uh, who God is in saving himself and concealing him in the day of trouble, in, in setting him on a rock and saving him. That's how David knows the Lord. And you cannot actually develop joy without experiential knowledge of who the Lord is. Some of you, I'm sure, are fans of the movie When Harry Met Sally. Uh, great movie, and one of, the, one, of the, the, one of my favorite parts of the movie is all these little interspersed interviews that happen between older couples. And one of my favorites is this, this elderly Asian couple that, talking about how they met. And they're talking about how they met in a, in a time when, um, when arranged marriages were the most common. And so their marriage was to be arranged. Their families got together and just said, this is who you're going to marry. And as you could maybe expect, uh, it, it brought a little anxiety to both of them. But the man talking about this says, you know, he wasn't sure what he was going to do, what to think about this, and so he ended up sneaking into her village. She lived in the village next door and washing, watching her as she was washing clothes with the other women and peeked in, and he got a glimpse of her, and he said, and she looked pretty good to me. And him seeing her, his knowledge of who she was, changed that marriage from a duty to a joy. It changed the idea of marriage from just being something that he had to pursue because that was what you did and that was a good thing for society to being a joy, to actually want to walk down the aisle with this particular woman. When we know, when we know the person experientially, it actually creates and produces joy in us. This was the first time, again, this week that I had spent any... Um, any length of time in New York City. I've been, you know, one or two times before, but it's been a little while. And the first time, I think, that I've actually been able to be in Central Park. And, you know, you, you look at, at pictures of Central Park, and you look at the overview. It's amazing, actually, when you look at kind of a, a, an, an aerial photo of Manhattan and this enormous park that's in the middle of it. 
And, you know, we've been around big parks before. We lived in St. Louis. Forest Park is a big park. In fact, if you meet anyone from St. Louis, they will tell you Forest Park is bigger than Central Park, right? That's the only thing they care about about Forest Park is that it's bigger than Central Park. But you can see the pictures and you can know about it, but it's really one of the repeated refrains from the guys that I was with uh, this week was, you know, the pictures just don't do it justice. And if you've ever been in Central Park, it really is a marvel. It's amazing the planning that went into this, to see these, these little pathways that kind of tuck in behind different trees, and you find yourself under a cover of greenery so thick that you can't see the sky, and then you walk out and open into this incredible uh, open area where people are playing Frisbee and eating picnics and playing with their dogs, and these little pathways that lead down to a little hidden lake, and these incredible stone bridges that you walk over and under, it really is incredible. And being in that environment actually, for me, produced joy. But it was not until I had seen it and experienced it and known it that I could actually feel that way. Because knowing something, experiencing, experiential knowledge of a person or a thing has to be the first step in actually leading toward a joyful life and experiencing the Lord knowing the Lord personally, knowing His character and His actions, and even knowing His character and His actions to you is the first step in increasing joy in your life. But there is a second step too, and it's not just knowledge, it's action. We respond to knowing the Lord. I mean, look at what David says here in verses 4 and 6. One thing I have asked the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Skipping down to verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of, and here's our word, joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David actually says that he is joyful in the Lord, but it's an active joy, right? Look at the words he uses, seek, dwell, gaze, inquire. And then the, the description of what's happening, it's singing, it's making music, it's shouts of joy. That word joy actually is used, in Hebrew is used so oftentimes as not a feeling word, but it's an action word. The word that's used there like literally means shouts or banging of cymbals. It is oftentimes used even as a war cry. This is active language that David is using here, is that he is rejoicing in the Lord, and that rejoicing in the Lord is actually a full body and full emotional experience. It's something that he is actually doing. Here's what Matthew Henry, the biblical commentator, says about this. Listen to this. All God's children desire to dwell in their father's house, not to sojourn there as a wayfaring man, not to tarry but for a night, or to dwell there for a time only as the servant that abides not in the house forever, but to dwell there all the days of their life as children with a father. Do we hope that the praising of God will be the blessedness of our eternity? Surely then, we ought to make it the business of our time. To make it the business of our time. To make the praising of God the business of our time. Actually, that produces a joyful life in us. 
Now listen, our tradition very rightfully and very appropriately emphasizes God's work, emphasizes God's work in salvation, emphasizes God's continual work in the world, His overseeing even of all things. But I think sometimes in our emphasis of God's work, we have forgotten that the Bible also speaks of our responsibility to work, to respond. We talked about this before, that the fruit of the Spirit is actually produced by the Spirit. But you know, Jesus says something really kind of scary on the surface. If you just read it in the Sermon on the Mount, he says it again in Luke. He says, a good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And guess what? They're going to know you by your fruit. Friends, when you read that, I mean, that, that, is, that is frightening. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. You start to look at your own life and the fruit of your own life, and if you've got any kind of conscience at all, that should make you a little bit nervous. So how do trees bear fruit? Well, again, they come attached to the source, and we get this all throughout the Bible. Psalm 1, there's a tree planted by a stream of water, and that tree produces incredible fruit. It's flourishing, but it's only flourishing because it's there by the stream. It's the stream of God's Word that is actually the source for the growth of that tree. Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and you'll produce fruit. How do we produce fruit as Christians? We stay attached to the source, attached to Jesus. We abide in Him. Paul says it in Galatians 5, if you want to see the the fruit of the Spirit produced in you, then keep in step with the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit doesn't come without the Spirit. It's the Spirit's fruit. We have to be attached to the source in order for that fruit to come about in our lives. That is clear throughout the Bible. But how do you attach yourself to the source? That actually does take some action, doesn't it? I was listening to, to Paul Tripp this week. He, he, he just mentioned that even just in a little five-minute discussion, something I'd never seen before. In Paul's discussion, you know, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, uh, don't be drunk with, with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I've always seen that just as a command, right, against drunkenness. And I think it is a command, but I think it's actually more than that, too. I think it's also an illustration of what it looks like for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about how you get drunk. You make particular decisions to drink a little bit more and a little bit more, and then at some point, those particular decisions that you've made have given control of your body over to something else. That something else is the alcohol that you put in your body. And so at some point, you're no longer the one making the decisions. But you have walked yourself up to that point by making small decisions in order to give away control to another. I'm sure you all have friends who have experienced this at some point. The same is true, though, for how we keep in step with the Spirit. We are called to actually make little actions, decisions in our lives, movements in our lives that actually lead us to give over control to someone else, and that is the Holy Spirit. We are called to act in such a way that we walk with the Spirit, and He's the one who leads, like those kids holding on to that rope, is that all we are called to do is to hold on to that rope. We're not called to lead. We're called to follow. But that does actually take action, doesn't it? 
one of my cohort members, the guys in my, in my class, um, is, is about the fittest guy I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he, he looks literally like he's been carved out of marble. And I kind of took him aside this week, and I was like, you know, uh, it, we were walking down the street, and <laughs> literally, I had a bagel in my hand, okay? A bagel with cream cheese and salmon all over it, and it's like dripping probably off of my chin. And I'm eating this bagel, and I say, man, you know, I need you to help me. Uh, I really want to lose 10 pounds. And he says, well, it's not going to come eating bagels. And, you know, here's the truth. I didn't say, really? I thought my bagel and cream cheese diet was the pathway toward weight loss, right? That did not surprise me. And here's the truth, you know, um, we live in a time and a place where most of us, broadly speaking, don't have a knowledge problem. Now, there may be some folks here today who say, who, who say I really don't know who Jesus is. If that's you, I'm so glad you're here. And it is important, so, so important that you know who Jesus is and what He's done. But friends, we live in New Braunfels, Texas. We live in the Bible Belt. Most people don't have a knowledge problem. We have an action problem. We have an action problem. We know what it takes to draw near to the Lord. But it's like we're in the desert with a full bottle of water, and we're like, why am I so thirsty? Why do I feel so far from the Lord? Well, have you, have you actually taken a drink from that full bottle of water that you have with you? We don't usually have a knowledge problem. We have an action problem. All right, let's move on to the next thing, components of a joyful life. And here's the last one. It's hope. It's hope. A joyful life is not just built on the knowledge of the Lord and who He is and what He's done for us and a response to that, an active response to that, but it's actually built on the hope of what God is doing. I want you to look at the way that David finishes this psalm. Verses 13 and 14, let me read them again. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David says that he believes that he will look upon the goodness of the Lord, that he's going to wait for him. Now, friends, there are certainly times where we have to continue to wait and uh, we, as, the, as those who live between the times, we wait for Jesus' return, but we also live in a different time than David did. David looked forward to the Messiah. He looked forward to the one who would bear the sins of the world on his own back. We actually get to look back on that. We actually get to look back and see that Jesus has done everything needed for us to be joyful. He has done what we could never do on our own. I love the way that J.I. Packer says this about kind of hope and, and how to set our hearts on things. He says, hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end, but it invariably does. But hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There can be no better news than this. Friends, what Jesus has done for us not only stimulates our joy but it actually is the model of joy for us. Jesus' own joy was to take up His cross and die so that we might be forgiven. 
the thing that gave Jesus the most joy was your salvation. How amazing is that? What our Savior rejoices in is that you would be cleansed, would be made new, would be made right. We hear that actually in Hebrews 12. We've read this before. It's worth looking at again. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I had a uh, great opportunity this, um, this week to go to the, to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, which was just fantastic overall, but also the Met had just actually gotten an exhibit, uh, a Van Gogh exhibit, that during his, um, they call it his Cypress time, where he actually was living in an asylum at the time, and he started painting cypress trees, but it's also the time that he painted one of his most famous paintings, The Starry Night. Everybody know that one with the swirly stars in the sky? And it's just really fascinating um, fascinating to look at his paintings and to look at this one in particular. And as I was, as I was there looking at this painting, a friend of mine who was there uh, was started to talk about it. She said, you know, it's interesting. If you look down uh, below the, the night sky into the town there, you'll actually see that all of the lights and all of the houses are on, except the church in the middle of the town has the lights off. And she began to tell me actually a story about Vincent van Gogh that I didn't know. He, he grew up really with, he grew his whole life um, with a very tense relationship with the church, his adult life actually. And actually you'll find it in many of his paintings, the churches will not have the lights on or they may, may be uh, painted without doors. Um, and a lot of that is because he has church wounds. In fact, he grew up uh, with his father as a pastor, and, and in fact, uh, Van Gogh himself pursued the pastorate when he was young and actually acted as a missionary for a few years. He was a missionary from the Netherlands where he grew up into Belgium and spent time with the miners in Belgium. It was where he was sent. And if you'll read about this, it's really fascinating uh, that the, the, the church actually set him up with a nice apartment in this town in Belgium and, and, and a servant even, and he gave up his apartment. He actually gave it to a homeless man. And he said, you live in my apartment, and he actually made a tent down by the miners. And he would live with them, and he would go down in the mines with them, and he would take off his kind of priestly garb and set it aside, and he'd dress in the things that they were wearing because he wanted to be like one of them. Uh, and the church actually didn't like it. They disciplined him for it. Um, because the church at the time, at least those particular members of that church, uh, really had a misunderstanding about how joy is grown, didn't they? They didn't actually think that joy could come from suffering, could come from actually walking alongside people who are living really difficult lives. It didn't come from actually giving of yourself. But Van Gogh was actually acting like Jesus. In fact, the miners called him the Christ of the Mines because he became one of them. He took on their difficulty. He lived their life. He walked in their shoes. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for us. And the writer of the Hebrews says, it's the thing that gave him the most joy. And so not only do we develop joy in our lives in the same way, walking what a friend of mine calls the cruciform way, but we actually develop joy in our lives by looking deeper and deeper into Jesus' joy, into seeing that He loves 
to walk alongside those dirty miners. That describes our hearts well. That He loves it when we come to Him and confess. That He loves it when we come and we lay our burdens before His feet. It gives Him great joy. I want to close with this quote from Dane Ortland. This is from his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I know many of you have read. Here's the uh, an illustration he gives. Listen to this. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He's had his medical equipment flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and they're available. He's independently wealthy, and he has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, those who are afflicted refuse the care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal their own, on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. So with us and so with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. That's what he came to heal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how incredible it is to read that your joy increased as you suffered and died on our behalf, that you pursued that even. Lord, we pray that we would be transformed by that joy, that you would develop and increase joy in our own hearts and our own lives based upon your sacrificial gift for us, even that we might respond by pouring ourselves out in the same way. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, produce the fruit in us that we could never produce on our own. We pray that you would do this even now. In Jesus' name, amen.